and embodiment. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit out of the miry bog. He set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Happy, happy are those who make the Lord their trust, who do not turn to the proud, those who go astray over false gods. You have multiplied, O my Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. Were I to proclaim and tell them, they would be more than could be counted. Sacrifice, an offering you do not desire, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. I said, here I am, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your saving help from within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness to the great congregation. Do not, O Lord, withhold your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Keep me safe forever. For evils have encompassed me without number. My iniquities have overtaken me until I cannot see. 
They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let all those be put to shame and confusion who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my hope, my help, my deliverer. Do not tarry to help me. I'll go ahead and read Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 10 now, because um, it sings, sounds, a section of the psalm that we just have been working on. Um, Before I do, though, I, I need to say that out of all of the New Testament books, Hebrews is probably, on the one hand, the most confusing to scholars. Um, And if you're interested in that, I can tell you why, Um, but not now. But ironically, sometimes the church has chosen Hebrews to settle on its understanding of the work of Christ, despite the fact that most scholars feel like we really don't know what's exactly going on in it. So I'm going to encourage you to hear this emotionally rather than propositionally. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who approach. Otherwise, they would have ceased being offered, since the worshipers cleansed once for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he sang, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. 
in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, See, God, I have come to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. When he sang above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in the sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings, even though these indeed are offered according to the law. Then he added, see, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. If I was to give a sort of Twitter summary of what we just read, it would be, beware of religious practice that uses guilt to motivate you. Before the writer of Hebrews would have us sing a stanza of Psalm 40, the writer reminds us that the law itself is only a shadow of good things to come and not the true form of those realities. A picture popped up on my phone a few weeks ago. It was of 10 years ago. And uh, it was of Cotriel sitting on my shoulders. Uh, she can't do that anymore. And we were watching the premiere parade in Disneyland in California, right? And Cotriel is waving and saying hi to all of the characters. Uh, to my mind and pocketbook, this was a Herculean vacation and task. It was one that I didn't really rest upon. Pushing Cotriel around in a stroller, my feet were tired. But there we were in that magical moment in the magical kingdom, and Cotriel's eyes were uh, or lit up with all of the magic and the wonder. And as soon as the parade was over, and that was the signal to us that it was time to go home, seven-year-old Eliana said to me, Dad, is that all there is? Now you would think, after spending all that money and all that effort, I would be upset, but I hugged and blessed that child and said, Eliana, Disneyland is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the true form of these realities. Yeah, I think the writer of Hebrews is saying something very similar to that. The author of Hebrews writes for a congregation of people who are so trapped in their fear, anxiety, and guilt that they are asking for probably demanding a parade-like earthly experience, a weekly Disneyland parade. That's what they want in worship, and that's what they imagine the old worship in the temple was like. This is a group of people who lived beyond the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. They were, as we often do, longing for the old days, give me that old-time religion, but maybe not remembering it accurately, remembering it in a way that would speak 
in a human way to their anxiety, fear, and guilt. In the Greco-Roman world in which they lived, that parade that I described was sacrifice. And the whole effort moving towards sacrifice, the cleansing around sacrifice, the experience of sacrifice, and the effect on the community. It is, in many ways, like a Disneyland parade. If you want to know more about that, I'm happy to tell you, but not now. What did sacrifice involve? Costumes, drama, thrill, danger, emotive impact, and song. These realities, says the writer, these realities were offered continually, and it just meant that people wanted more because it didn't take care of the root problem. It didn't, in his language, make perfect those who participated in the sacrifice. Uh, I wish that we could get rid of that English translation, make perfect, because I have a feeling that whenever we hear that, it actually catapults us back to that community and places us within it that is trapped, right, by anxiety, guilt, and fear. Um, the Hebrew word, we've talked about this a lot, and for example, uh, Jesus uses it on the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, right? It's not perfect. It's not perfect in the Greek sense. It is, you must be complete or you must be centered, right? And so, in other words, the Disneyland parade of sacrifice, as impressive as it is, and by the way, do you know that the largest holder of explosive devices in this country, second only to the U.S. Army, is Disneyland and Disney World? However impressive those parades are, they didn't actually center anyone. And that's why they had to be repeated all the time. Now, do you think Disney, when it puts together its parades and fireworks spectacles, are hoping for repeat customers? How do we judge our success as a church? Repeat customers or centered people? What drives us? Is it connection with Christ? Or is it anxiety, guilt, and fear? Sacrifice is, is not simple. Um, it's all over the place. It's sort of trying to, um, if you look at it, it's trying to explain why something that's almost unexplicable, uh, is done. And yet, if you participate in it, you can't unsee it. You feel it all the way through the depths of your beings. You carry it with you. Uh, because sacrifice is also inherently violent, um, 
there's a PTSD component to it that often drives people back to it, almost in an addictive way. Now, what the author of Hebrews wants his congregation to recognize is that the key thing that these sacrifices point to on earth, they are a shadow of something else, is that they remind us that there's nothing that we can do as human beings to eradicate sin. And so the very fact that whatever we do religiously, if it is not centering on a real relationship with God in Christ, leaves us, like Eliana, by 2 o'clock this afternoon, saying to each other, is that it? And desperately wanting something more, something better, something that will do the work for us. The way the author of Hebrews says it is, it is impossible for the um, blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Uh, commentators say something like this. The continual offering of the sacrifices is actually evidence of their ineffectiveness. If the sacrifice had been effective, worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all, and they would no longer have consciousness, guilt of sin, or the desire to sin. But you know, sacrifice is pretty cool. And stuff is pretty cool... That's costly, but that makes it pretty cool, right? So, I mean, it's pretty cool when you buy a really expensive car, even though you don't need it. And the fact that it's really expensive is what makes it cool. The perfection of those who approach, for the uh, author of Hebrews, is actually the perfection of what we might call conscience, or this sense of being uh, dialed in with God, dialed in with God, vulnerable before God, connected with God in all of those ways that we talked about with the kids. Intimate, vulnerable, loving, grace-fostered relationship between a person and God. And in order to bring that home, the author of Hebrews has to stop talking like I'm talking right now, which we all have so many defenses for. And he quotes a song. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. He goes with the Greek translation. In Hebrew, it's ears you have dug for me. In the Greek translation, a whole body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, see God, I have come to do your will, O God. And the book in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. That's such a great change for a, a Greek world from ears you have dug. So in Hebrew, ears are what you hear with, right? Shema. But for Hebrews, if you hear, you then obey. Not so much for the Greeks. If you hear, it can be yada, yada, yada. So it's a whole body for the Greeks. And the other reason why that makes so much sense, I mean, let's think about this. With a body, we feel, we ache, we carry pain, we love, 
We are loved. We sink with anxiety. We move to work. We thrill with excitement. We connect with others, even with the body. We bring new life into the world. It is the whole person that lives open and vulnerable before God. Always connected. Always connected, but only fleetingly conscious of that connection up here. Always connected, but only fleetingly conscious up here. The connection is felt more deeply in our bodies than in our reasoning minds. Now, why is this such a great uh, paraphrase in the Greek translation of Psalm 40? Because the Greeks and the Romans hated the body. They loved the mind. The body only created problems. They despised the body. They despised what we would call the whole person. And they wanted the mind to transcend to the real truth, the real goodness, the real beauty, through either philosophy or spectacle. The congregation that the author of Hebrews is writing to wants spectacle. They want the parade. They want the costumes. They want the smells. They want the thrill. They need that to distract them from their bodies that are open and vulnerable before God. Spectacle, sacrifice, or the Colosseum. Frankly, both are pretty close to the same thing. So why does the author connect with Psalm 40? It focuses on the body as we talked with our children. It recovers and indwells the body. It puts the locus of action on God meeting us in our bodily selves, re-inhabiting a culturally traumatized body. If the author of Hebrews was writing today, he probably wouldn't write to people desiring spectacle, although he could but maybe those struggling with body shame. Just think about this for a moment. Is there any rationale in Christ for any person created in the image of God to struggle with body shame? What are we doing? It focuses on the body. Secondly, this is the song of one who has lived the surprise of God's deliverance from crisis and despondency in the past. But now, so important for the community, praise a vulnerable prayer facing once again a crisis. The great thing about spectacle is you can do it every week. You can keep the illusion going that the life of faith is a life of distraction, a life of party, a life of carnival? When we know that the life of faith, at least the life of faith that we saw in Jesus Christ, leads us from great joy to the very depths. Take this cup from me. 
He uses Psalm 40, perhaps, because faith in disrupted relationship is not about control or rescue or ceremonial reassurance. It's about staying in relationship despite unknowing, despite perplexity. Even when you feel that everything you have hoped and valued and trusted is slipping through your fingers. Especially when you feel that everything is slipping through your fingers. It's when everything begins to slip through our fingers that we discover what embodied faith really is. And that's what the poet sings of. And finally, the closing words of this poem are a fitting reminder that this is part of the life, the real life, the tangible life of faith. That despite our own individual experiences of God's rescue, God does not work for us. God does not answer to us. We remain in our very best embodied self as the final line. I am poor and needy. May the Lord take thought of me. So when I was waiting for that concert, it was a U2 concert. U2 usually closes their concert with a song that they simply call 40. It's Psalm 40. A U2 concert is spectacle. Now, it's different spectacle than the Rolling Stones. Right? One of the things that often happens at a U concert is that people that are working for justice around the world are brought onto stage and they are showcased. That people attending the concert are signed up for acts of justice and mercy and so on. But it's spectacle. And they've made a lot of money. But they end the show with 40. And the way it works is that one by one, the band members just stop and walk off stage. And you never see them again. And usually what happens is those in attendance keep on singing 40 themselves. This is how they understand Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He brought me out of the pit, out of the mire and clay. I will sing. I will sing a new song. I will sing. I will sing a new song. And then the plea. How long to sing this song? How long to sing this song? In every clear, deep, joyous, surprising connection with God. If it is faithful, also has to be accompanied with absence, longing, waiting, action, waiting, praying, waiting. If you want faith and not spectacle. Amen. Good morning. My name is Jeannie Lem. I'm standing up here trying to follow up that sermon. 
I'm sorry I didn't grow up knowing Hebrew. I wonder what our world would be like if we lived life through our gut, through our heart, through our soul. And Psalm 40 really brings that out to me, but on a little different path than what Scott had. Psalm 40 was written a few thousand years before Hebrews. There is an ebb and a flow in this psalm, and sometimes it almost ebbs and flows totally out of control from my point of view. The beginning of the psalm, it's starts so sweetly, so nicely. He inclined and heard my cry. How sweet. But the, this psalm also show, begins with seeking and finding the assurance of God's presence and the elation, and then the abandon and uncertainty it speaks of thanksgiving for deliverance and then immediately follows up with prayers for help. The ebb and the flow of this psalm, the writer must be clinging to hope. How else could you write something like this and not have some seed of hope within you? This psalmist was writing thousands of years before Christ came. I waited patiently on the Lord. And when I think about that, I just thinking, you know, patiently on the Lord. When we are in those places in our life when we're saying, Lord, I need help. I don't know of anybody that can tell me a story about how God appeared to them in person and said, okay, here's what to do. I do know of situations, though, when we pray for help, and it's that gut-wrenching scream almost, Lord, Please help me, save me. I think this psalmist at some point when, they, when it was being written may have been in danger of their, li their, their life. I don't know. But I do know in our life here, now, today, that each and every one of us is capable of being the face of God. And I think God depends on us to lift others out of a miry bog. We are so capable, and we have so much to give, and yet we hold back and say, oh, I can't do that. We're really skirting around God. I can see God saying, what do you mean you can't do that? We can. At the beginning of COVID, it was my opinion that here was the chance for the church to begin to be what re God really intends it to be. Not that we haven't been before. We're in a safe, beautiful, secure environment right now. 
and in a while we're going to walk out into the world and we may be facing a lot of uncertainty, a lot of hurt, a lot of trauma, and we may be seeing that in the lives of other people. That's where God comes in. That's where we can be the face of God, not in some brilliant sort of rhetoric, but just being there, listening, being willing to sit silently, being willing to look at the face of another person and seeing their pain and acknowledging it, letting them know that they are loved, there is nothing that this psalmist can do to take God's magnificent love away from himself. And yet, he really sinks down into a very frightening place. And the vacillation of, not the vacillation, but, but the, the emotion from the beginning of the psalm and all of a sudden, toward the middle, that elation crashes into some kind of a storm. We don't know what it is. How often does that happen to us? Life is great. And all of a sudden, the lights go out. And that's where the rest of us have a job to do. We have a job to stand by one another to love one another unconditionally, which is really hard sometimes, but that's what we're called on to do. So I don't have to worry about what's going on in the book of Hebrews if I look at Psalm 40. What I do need to remember that God depends on us. We can cry out to God God needs us to do his work. And that's what I see in this psalm. At the end of the psalm, something has happened, and the psalmist is able to be lifted and knows that they are secure again. That's the ebb and flow. I know that Scott loves Bono, and I wish I could be more in tune with the man, I just have not bothered to do it, and I admit my embarrassment. But the words that come out of Bono and the words that come out of the psalmist are not words that either creator has, has searched for. They are words that come unbidden, unwelcome, and just not fitting into our lifestyle. I'm thinking of another author, Terry Pratchett, who is a British author, and his quote was that people think they write stories, when in fact it's the other way around. Stories write the people. The psalmist in Psalm 40, as in many, many others, wasn't writing the story. God was writing the story. And the words came 
out of the middle of nowhere, and I can see this person scrambling, trying to scratch the words out quickly before they went away. And I have to wonder, the Psalms are full of gut-wrenching reality. And they're, all, they're also glorious and awful and awesome, just like our life. And I wonder further, what would it look like, what would it be like if we allowed our life to write our own psalm? Before I leave the pulpit or wherever it is I'm standing, I was standing in the gathering place outside this morning, and I've noticed these a while. If you haven't picked up one, they're writings by John Donahue. Look at them. Take a copy home and put it on your refrigerator. Put it someplace where you can read it throughout the week. I think God will speak to you.